This is Fine Rambles, number 56. Um, I'm here with a friend of mine who uh, wishes to remain anonymous. I stayed for a while in Brooklyn, went back into Manhattan, where I lived for a long time. I'm walking around looking at the places I used to go. And, oh God, and here's the rub. The rub is that at least half of them no longer fucking existed. And <laughs> it's like, it's like I'm looking forward, I'm looking forward to being nostalgic and there's a for lease sign or there's like a fucking home goods store where my apartment used to be. And, you know, that little bookstore where I love to go browse, that's gone. And now it's like a woman's clothing store. And the pizza place I used to go is now like Taco Tuesdays. You know, I know I sound like an asshole because shit changes and this is Manhattan and thousands of these places fold and fail every year. But, you know, I had, I had accumulated experience at that place. A part of myself was living at that place. And when I go back there, and remember those memories, I'm, I'm connecting with that person I used to be. And if that place is no longer there, <laughs> right? Like, like <laughs> there's no connection. There's no, there's no remembrance. You're just destroying the past. You're destroying a past part of yourself. That's why you have to use Instagram now. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, okay, so, oh God, help me understand that. So if I have, a photograph of the place. It lives on forever. A story. A story. Sorry. Yeah, a Not video. a photograph. A series of mm. photographs. Maybe every time you're there, you check in. You <laughs> yourself. But this is what people are doing now without realizing it. Wait, what are they doing? Like people go to a restaurant that they go to a lot and they always check in. They take photos of themselves. It's somewhere. It goes, the, the bits go somewhere. Okay, let me push back because I think that's complete bullshit. Obviously, we all see this all the time. Someone's at a place and instead of experiencing the place, they're experiencing it through their phone, right? Like this is what I said about Coachella. People weren't at Coachella. They were at Instagram and Coachella was just the backdrop. Coachella was just the prop. When you're taking a photo, you're distracted. You're distracted from everything else that's going on around you. Um, however, uh, if you wish to revisit that memory five years later, when the place you, you know, were enjoying is now something completely different, there is no other alternative but to consult some other recording device. Because if you want to go to Two Boots Pizza and it's now a laundromat, there's nothing you can do. There's part of me that's like, why do we keep erasing our history? And why do we keep substituting this sort of ersatz, like two-dimensional, low-resolution Instagram version of it? I think what we should do is we should have uh, 4K resolution headbands, 360-degree <laughs> views of everything that we do at all times. And then we can basically relive exactly where our eyes were at any given moment whenever we want. But until then, we have Instagram. So is that... A good thing or is that a Black Mirror episode? Well, again, it's both. I'm sympathetic to what you're talking about because it 
you know, as someone who's been in New York for a long time, the same thing has happened to me over and over again, where some of the places where I've forged my happiest, most interesting, or whatever, strongest memories are now gone. Those places are gone. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very sad because you can walk by the facade and you can see it there, but it's just this empty skeleton of what it used to be, which yeah. is depressing. It's highly depressing. Yeah. It's alienating. I think I remember reading about how uh, some studies were done where they basically relocated um, senior citizens to uh, a town that basically mimicked what their lives were like when they were much younger, like in their 20s or 30s or teens. Oh, that's creepy. Uh, and, and, and basically only had media there that was timeline appropriate. And uh, the result was that uh, somehow... Um, through osmosis, the people who were in that experience for about two, two or three weeks um, actually felt younger. So they were, hmm. their bodies were less achy um, and they felt happier. Um, wow. And I think this is why gentrification makes people so angry, right? Because um, not only does the phenomenon that we're just describing occur, it happens also at the same time with a level of triumphalism as well as uh, class-related friction uh, that is highly uh, aggravating to people who experience Mm -hmm. uh, the wrong end of gentrification. I've now been able to experience at least one or two rounds of it. Right, (laughs) right, right. Right? You're part of one wave and then the next wave hits. I've I've seen probably two waves since I've gotten there. And... um, Exactly what we're talking about, has, I have now experienced on the wrong end of that um, with places where I've forged really good memories and for re- very simple economic reasons, the places where those memories were forged um, no longer exist uh, and, and they've been replaced by other places. And you go in there and it's a juice bar or it's, right. a, it's a chase bank. I don't think humans were actually really wired to, to deal with that this specific phenomenon very well. If the community is dispersed through gentrification and the people have to move to different areas, the ties that bind the community together there are destroyed and you're basically left with a bunch of isolated, alienated people. They just happen to be physically nearby. Which, which uh, again, that is probably not how most humans have lived for the majority of human history. The exact opposite. Right. Yeah. It's not, I mean, humans are used to having uh, some level of community, some level of familiar shared spaces, some level of ancestral territory. Right. And that's why we need augmented reality, (laughs) (laughs) where we can uh, basically overwrite the existing facades of buildings and uh, maybe even the interiors and just uh, experience the, the old ones that we, that we knew and loved. That would be so cool. Imagine, wait, so how would that work? You would have one building and then everyone would see a different building. Or maybe it's just, you know, you could decide, you know, I want to see this building circa 1999. Another oh person God. might say... The 19- Brooklyn hipsters would finally be able to live in 1920s Manhattan. Well, Battlestar Galacta... Galactica actually um, did that really well. I don't know if you've ever seen that show. Mm-mm. What did they do? So the, the cyborgs uh, or the robots, the 
artificial intelligence, um, the Cylons. Basically, in the new version, they they lived in these ships that, if you didn't have the right software, looked like incredibly Spartan, um, barren, uh, just brutalist structures. However, the Cylons saw them as uh, these, you know, incredible. Um, spectacularly beautiful vistas all the time because they were their AR was actually built into their own um, consciousness. So so essentially, if you were a Cylon and you, you were say in a jail, right? Uh, instead of looking like four awful concrete walls, it would look like you know a Hawaiian waterfall with um, a jungle mm. surrounding you. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's no reason why humans couldn't actually eventually do that, and we probably will. Yeah, this is really random. I think Thomas Jefferson wrote in a letter that the danger of travel was that you left part of yourself behind everywhere you went. And I would say, certainly for anyone before 1970, both you and I are pretty well-traveled. Maybe not by the crazy standards of today. And I think about that sometimes And I almost feel like I have to go visit the places I've been to remember who I was. And the more places you go, the harder that is to do. And the more those places change, the harder it is to do. And again, you know, I'm on this kick of talking about ideas like localism and and avoiding ersatz products and living a high resolution life. And maybe this comes back to the same place, which is you shouldn't travel. <laughs> you should you should create a place where you live that isn't dependent on the kindness of strangers, that isn't reliant on them not shutting down a business, that isn't reliant on you being able to fly to London and see places that you used to visit. One thing we often overlook is that the smell memory is the most powerful of all, mm-hmm. um, which you can't get from a photo. Right. It's not on Instagram. No, it's not on Instagram yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it's not on AR. See, that's my point, though, right? So you have, you have this experience, this five-dimensional, this you know, five-senses experience, and then we pick one, and it's maybe not even the one that's important. And we reduce this high resolution experience to this low resolution experience. And then we try to take this ersatz result and claim it's the real thing. When it's not. Imagine if you could do Instagram for smell. I mean, when I was a kid, my parents used to go out at night, right? They'd put me to sleep and they'd go out. And then the babysitter would be downstairs. And then they'd come home. And my mom would come up to kiss me goodnight. And she'd be wearing like her outfit and she'd smell of smoke. And I would feel like very safe and warm and loved. Like if I could get that smell back, that would be amazing. Apparently the sexiest smell for a man is the smell of a hamburger on the grill. (laughs) Really? Yeah, yeah. Isn't that crazy? But I mean, I personally- Sorry, vegetarian. (laughs) Yeah, vegans. Diced cucumbers just don't do it the same way. Quinoa is not as hot. <laughs> Wait 20 years, though. Be like, oh, man, the Beyond Burger smell of a... Whoa. I talked about the Beyond Burger last week. Have you, have you had one? Yes. 
Do you care to share your thoughts? Whenever possible, I, I, I think it's important to think about the welfare of, of animals. Um, oh so I do think that uh, there is a very compelling case for eliminating the suffering of animals, uh, but also providing protein to people that they like. All right, let's let's not get into this. Just for the record, (laughs) just for the record, my friend is vegetarian, almost vegan, and uh, considers his method to be the more moral method. And I'm basically a carnivore. I eat very little non-animal. He's actually a werewolf. (laughs) Not many people know this. But in two hours, it's going to be a full moon. Look, if I was a werewolf, my sex life would be so much better. (laughs) Hey, you know, you just don't remember it. (laughs) That's possible. Uh, Yeah, and so I'm, I'm basically a carnivore, and I think my method is the more moral method. And obviously, we could debate this for a hundred years. This would be a different podcast. That would definitely be a very different podcast. So I've not only had the burger, but I've also had the Beyond Meat chicken in a taco, and it was almost indistinguishable from the chicken taco. It tasted like chicken? It really really did. But did the burger taste like a burger? Uh, I mean, it was slightly different. It was a little bit less bloody. If you'd been given that burger at a Shake Shack or a Five Guys, would you have sent it back? Uh, no. Wow, okay. No. That's high praise. Although I've never eaten at a Five Guys or a Shake Shack. So, <laughs> 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 so details, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know, yeah. I talked about this last week, but it's probably one of the unhealthiest products on the market today. The vegetable oils, the lack of bioavailable protein, the lack of bioavailable mi- micronutrients. It's, it's a walking disaster. I mean, we live in the dark ages on diet. We still know almost nothing. But it's so obvious looking at like the obesity epidemic that almost everything we're doing right now is just wrong. But I would also add to that, even if you got the diet right, um, we are on another dimension of dark ages, which is we don't fully understand slash we choose to ignore the influence of uh, basically foreign hormone-imitating chemicals that basically we're exposed to constantly in everything that we use, um, which, of course, impacts how our bodies react to caloric uh, intake. And so... We're in this chemical bath all the time. We're we're constantly being uh, bombarded with especially xenoestrogens, um, which cause people to to gain weight. But it's not just that. It's obviously, like you talk about, the level of uh, processing in the average American diet. I don't know if Beyond Meat is the right right product. Yeah. Right? I I actually haven't looked too closely at how many hydrogenated oils, etc. I'm not shocked at all that it pretends to be a quote-unquote healthy alternative to meat when, in fact... Who knows what it's loaded with? Um, I don't know if we want to get into this, but (laughs) this idea that like the perfect, like nature evolved the perfect cycle for food, which is sun grows plants, cow eats plants, cow 
shifts, releasing nutrients back into the soil, which creates topsoil, and then the people eat the whole animal, and they do it with respect. And that cycle is much healthier for the humans, for the animals, and for the planet than the monocropping that we have today, which destroys the topsoil, which leaches all the nutrients out of the soil, which kills thousands of smaller animals when those fields are plowed and harvested. Yeah, and I think that all you have to do is look at the news to look at, you know, African swine flu uh, to get a sense as to what happens when we take this too far. Wait, what's, what's happening there? Well, African swine flu is essentially pig Ebola, and it's uh, spreading all across Asia. Um, oh, you're saying because it's factory farming and they're put too close together? It's not just that, but yeah, it's part, of, part and parcel of that. They, you know, the animals are too close together. Their welfare is absolutely in no way considered at all. Um, and one of the aspects of animal welfare is the amount of space that an animal can roam around in. Yeah. And whether or not they're stacked on top of each other in little gestation crates or whether or not they're actually naturally walking around a field. Um, and that's the difference between free range and factory farm. I love that you brought this up because like so many things, people are like, we need to solve this problem. And my response, and I think I'm sort of in line with Bjorn Lumberg here, is the way to solve that problem is to get everyone rich because rich people want to eat healthy. And if they have a choice when they're rich between shitty factory farmed chicken or free range chicken, they're gonna take the more expensive option. But if you're poor, you simply can't afford to do that. Yeah, and I guess the other irony is um, when people are rural and poor, they're probably eating more healthy food, ceteris paribus, than someone who is of middle class in a highly urban area. Yes, absolutely. Um, and so that's another problem that we have to solve that doesn't actually get fixed when you get richer to a certain point. Um, and this is what we're experiencing in, again, unnamed countries that I won't name, um, <laughs> where there's a very large and rising middle class uh, that has the ability to buy meat, more meat products, but they're not able to buy the products uh, that are you know, really ethical towards the treatment of the animals that they're eating. Um, and you know, one consequence of that is you get piggy bola, right? Because right. you... Economics have completely o overwhelmed every other consideration for the appetites that are growing at a certain rate. No, I think your point's exactly right. This idea that we turn all the dials in an industry to the maximum efficiency, but we don't realize that the cost of that efficiency is fragility, that a supply chain stretched to the breaking point will break. And so we think it's cost efficient to breed and to harvest pigs in this fashion. And then nature taps us on the shoulder and says, aha. Yeah. Oh, by the way, when, uh, when you stack enough disease carriers on top of each other in a way where you actually, and first of all, before you even do that, you absolutely don't care how they feel. Um, and as an outgrowth of that, you've essentially stacked them on top of each other where, where misery is absolutely no concern uh, of the animals. Or, or it's a concern of the animals, but not the people causing it. And um, it, I'm not saying it's karma. I'm not trying to be spiritual about it. But 
I do believe there is an emotional logic. The uh, lords of karma. <laughs> um, I do think there is a there is a component here. There's a moral, um, which is um, animals that are treated properly are not going to be transmitting diseases such that not only are the animals themselves destroyed, but you know the livelihoods of the farmers who originate this situation, th- their livelihoods are also destroyed. So to your point, uh, fragility. Um, is the name of the game um, when you get to the point of factory farming. Again, you have amazing ideas. Part of me says this is kind of like a Telebian lens, which is nature evolved pigs or any animal to be farmed or just to live in a certain way. And then man, in his arrogance, comes along and says, aha, I've designed a better way on paper and I know it's going to work because it's cheaper, and so I'm going to implement it without thinking through the second-order consequences, and then, oh my god, everything goes to shit? What a fucking surprise. And I think about, like, Monsanto in the same way. We're going to genetically modify and engineer these crops and the fertilizer to work together, and we're just going to assume everything goes to plan. And then when it doesn't, they're like, oh, I'm so surprised. I can't believe I tried to play God and it backfired. Who could have seen that coming? And the answer is every fucking person who wasn't getting a check from that company right. could see it coming. Everyone who's seen Jurassic Park <laughs> seen that coming. Right, right. Life finds a way. I'm quite confident that the Talmudic teachings about diet um, definitely had at least 50%, they were 50% designed with practicality in mind for the time when they were uh, laid down in writing, right? Mm-hmm. Shellfish. These mm-hmm. are we didn't have refrigeration until very very recently. Shellfish. Um, you know, eating meat and milk together, um, preparing the meat in a certain way, uh, such that it's drained of of blood and other fluids that can you know essentially um, what's the word? Uh, not rot, but um, putrefy. So mm. all those things, um, you know. They, there's a lot of wisdom, just like Taleb says, in the old ways that we have um, effectively chosen to ignore in the name of, um, you know, getting three cents a pound better on our <laughs> on our chicken meal. Yeah. Um, and, and part of me says, sorry to interrupt, part of me says that's, that's the benefit of rationality. You can say, I know why it was done that way in that time. This has changed. Therefore, we don't have to do this anymore. And part of me says that's arrogant by itself to assume that you understand the arrows of causality that well. And I I guess I try to square that circle, circle that square, square that circle by saying, let's run some experiments. Let's do some real small trials with your idea and see if it works. But they have to be real trials and they have to have a pretty long time horizon because second order effects take time to develop. And so just because, just because cancer takes 20 years to develop doesn't mean we can ignore the impacts of asbestos, right? And so if you were going to do a trial on smoking or on asbestos or on glyso- glyphosate, it's really hard to run that trial for long enough to see the actual consequences. And I don't think, is there an answer to that problem or is it just the world's complex and we're going to make mistakes. 
What's the what's the problem you're trying well, to Well the answer? problem is in theory you would want you want to update those old beliefs, right? There are parts of the Bible, for example, the condemnation of homosexuality, that I think very few of us still agree with. And then the question becomes how do we what's the mechanism for updating ancient wisdom, essentially? Right? Because in theory, a lot of the moral teachings in the Bible, including the diet laws, are the result of thousands of years of trial and error that were codified in these texts. Um, but how do we update those, those beliefs? Because they're probably quite robust, and we should be very cautious in saying, well, it was developed over millennia and millennia, but now we have plastic dishes instead of wooden bowls, and so now we can drink milk out of the same bowl that we eat meat out of. From everything I've seen from the texts, the ancient you know, uh, religious texts that I've studied, uh, rationality is still a useful tool, uh, and I think that we can, we can apply our rationality uh, judiciously to these rules and decide which ones make sense. Uh, and, and the reason I say that is because um, prior to you know, the age of reason, uh, everyone had to kind of take the good stuff along with the bad stuff as a single whole. Um, and uh, every so often, people with enough authority were able to modify or change those rules slightly or add upon them. But most of the time, they, it was just sort of handed down as a body of work. And you were not allowed to question any of it. Um, you were just supposed to kind of, um, well, contemplate it, uh, study it, and and ruminate upon it. Uh, but Right. The, the, the rules, um, some of which might be very rational and some of which might have been just completely crackpot nonsense, well, they're all sitting together. So I think rationality still has a role to play um, to understand those things. But my, my original point was simply that even if those rules were used uh, or justified in a way that doesn't seem rational, they might have actually been rational. Um, and with rationality in mind, but the transmission mechanism um, was probably stronger and, and more robust when rationality was not brought into the picture uh, as to the justification. So in other words, if you don't want to have people eat meat and milk at the same time because for whatever reason you've dis discovered uh, it does impact your gut flora in, in a poor way, or maybe it decreases your sperm count. Who knows? You've just created like 10 million anti-vaxxers. <laughs> Guys, you heard it here first. Eating milk and meat together destroys your sperm count. Right. It sounds like what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is A, ideology is a really good transmission mechanism because you just believe it completely. And at the same time, ideology is a really terrible transmission system because you're not allowed to pick it apart, take, to pick apart the different parts of the ideology and say, this is obviously a good idea. We're going to keep this. This is obviously a bad idea. We're going to throw it away. You know, it's nice that the Beyond Burger isn't killing an animal, but it's bad that you're probably ingesting, uh, you know, in, in its place, in the meat's place, something that could make you unhealthy. It'd be amazing if people were like, I want grass-fed beef, I want free-range chicken, I don't want pork at all, because pigs just are a higher class of animals. And if they were willing to pay up for that, then you would start to see supply respond, and you'd start to see a shift from factory farming to grazing animals. And, and I think we have. Yeah, because we're rich. And because we're more educated. Right. Right? Right. 
Uh, and because people understand that eating a McDonald's burger three times a day is a bad idea. Right. Um, and if you are going to eat meat, eat meat that is from an animal that was able to move around as an animal would have done a thousand years ago, as opposed to, uh, you know, being pumped full of antibiotics, oh, uh, yeah. lead-laced uh, feed that it, the, the animal did not evolve to consume, and... Um, you know, never moved. Part of me says this idea that like nobody gets away with anything ever. And so we've all conspired to create these terrible conditions. We've all conspired through our purchasing decisions to torture animals and to essentially poison ourselves. And now we're bearing the cost. But then part of me is like, look, if I'm poor, I have three kids and I work two jobs and I don't have a lot of disposable income. And McDonald's is right there, and it's cheap, and it's convenient, and they have toys for my kids, and hey, asshole, I'm not about to go pay $12.99 per pound for grass-fed ground beef and then go home when I'm exhausted and slave and make food. This is why I keep saying I think the economics has to come to some degree before the morality, because people, when they're put into impossible decisions, sorry, when they're put into impossible situations, they make decisions we may not agree with, but it's not their fault. It's the fault of the fact that we're just not rich enough yet for them to make the proper decision. Or there's just not enough supply of the right type of meat that would be healthy. But they can supply it at a price that those people can pay. Well, not yet, but I'm saying like if the supply were higher, then the price would be lower. You're saying economies of scale, basically. Yeah, but economies of scale that aren't the scale that cause meat to be factory farmed. Okay, well, let me, let me see if I can make a parallel here. It's probably a terrible parallel, but it reminds me of Tesla, which is the early adopters for grass-fed beef help create the conditions where they can expand the supply so they can drive the cost down. Because prices were very high, and it was quite lucrative in the beginning. Right. And it probably still is lucrative. I don't know what the profit margins are for a you know, free-range beef company versus oh, right. one that's you know, factory-farmed. It's actually a really interesting question, like how capital-intensive is a factory? Right. I mean, it should be pretty, pretty capital-intensive versus a range, which is literally... A field. Mm -hmm. You do not need to build it. Right. Well, so I've heard that it actually is quite economic to do this if you do it the right way. For example, you have electrically controlled fences so that you can shift them from pasture to pasture. You don't have to provide feed because it's just the grass. And often the land is not that expensive. So I've been doing a lot of driving lately. And in these trips where I'm crossing in Texas and in Arkansas and in Mississippi... There are these just enormous fields where the cows are having a pretty good life. And right now, I bet a lot of that beef is being sold at a low price because that's the only demand for it. But if you have people who were willing to pay, you know, $20 a pound for grass-fed ribeye, all of a sudden the math is going to change really quickly and you're going to start promoting that kind of good supply. And I I mean, isn't Tesla the same thing? I mean, we can argue about whether Tesla itself will succeed, but I think it's pretty clear that the initial proof of concept that people were willing to pay for EV has created this enormous surge in supply of EV. And therefore, 
it's accelerated the cost curve decline of, of batteries and just tooling up to make more of these cars. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a very good parallel. If you talk to auto analysts or industry people, they will all happily admit that Tesla blazed a trail for EVs. Right. Um, and they are the white rabbit that everyone else is chasing. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, there's economic opportunity lurking everywhere in spaces that no one, that don't exist in the moment. Right. Right? Um, and I think that uh, even though we've been knocking Beyond Meat, um, they're again sort of proving that uh, with their valuation mm-hmm. in the markets today, um, where people have started to catch on. Well, the valuation certainly implies an enormous TAM. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think that's... I don't know if they will ultimately be the ones to, you know, take advantage of that enormous TAM. I think that remains to be seen. But the TAM itself has... It's essentially like almost like a... Wow, I'm going to really get intellectually masturbatory for a second. But, you know, once they, once they essentially uncovered that market... Uh, by existing, um, people realize, aha, yes, this is in fact uh, something that we can, you know, profit off of. And yes, it is large. It, there is a large market because, oh my God, uh, the meat market is quite large in the, right. in, on earth. Let uh, me spin that mm-hmm. just a little bit because I would argue it's not the company itself that's demonstrated the TAM. It's the public markets, like the equity markets. Yeah, no, that's what I meant. Okay. Yeah. It's worth like four and a half, five billion dollars. Yeah. And I think what your point is, that's a huge signal that the market is sending to anyone in this industry to say, there is potential here. Come attack Beyond Meat. Come develop your own meat substitute. Yeah, and Tesla did the same exact thing with EVs. That's, uh, I think that's all I have. For this week, thank you to my anonymous guest, and uh, I'll catch you next week.